Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week you've got the pleasure of a recording because me and Heather are actually in Birmingham. We're at the Festival of Enterprise, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I'm sure we'll be sharing lots of lovely, juicy information that we find there um, when we're next in the studio with you. So this week, our topic is electric cars. I don't have one. Do you, Heather? I don't have one, but I know a man who has. And do you cover one? Uh, I think it's I think it's something that I would be open to using. Yeah. Um, but I think some of the things that, you know, we're going to talk about, there are lots of reasons why it's not as easy. I think I think we're just at the point where things are really going to um, change. Yeah. One of the big moves for company car drivers is that um, there's been a development in the benefits in kind tax that you pay. And the government um, made a decision that pure electric vehicles will pay no benefit in kind tax in the tax year 2020. 21. So okay. that's encouraging people to move. And, and then the increase for the subsequent years will be quite low. So it, it's encouraging people to um, consider changing their company car and helping companies to get their fleets of vehicles, which are aiming to be more fully electric within the next six to 10 years, I guess. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as with it's a bit like with um you know no smoking campaigns you know so we're trying to reduce the amount of smoking that reduces revenue so here we are with electric car technology so that's going to reduce the amount of fuel carbon fuel that's going to be bought which is going to reduce duty which is going to reduce revenue so i i don't know how they balance the books on this stuff i'm not saying it's not the right thing to be doing but you know, they're, all these subsidies and then they're reducing t- tax payable. So the cost must be massive, the overall cost, because it's a double whammy, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I don't know how all the um, the books balance in, in government, but uh, they're at the risk of being controversial here. There are a number of organisations that perhaps could contribute more with their taxes but yes yes anyway let's, anyway. let's get back to electric cars yes, so yeah. I, I found an article which talked about some of the challenges of electric cars um one one of them obviously it takes time for people to adopt new technology yeah which is i think where i'm at I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be the leader with any cars and apparently it takes uk drivers anywhere between one and 15 years to change a vehicle Right, okay. Uh, there is talk at the moment that there are a, a wave now of second-hand electric car. You know how the car market... Yeah. So now it is possible to buy a second-hand electric car. And that's that's that churn, I suppose. Uh, one of the other ones is um, the, the idea of um, there's not not much choice in electric cars at the moment. So we, we both uh, identified a couple of vehicles that um, we'd spotted. I, there's one that I covered, and I think I, I'm, I'm looking more in the price bracket, bracket that I could potentially afford, and you were going to the top of the price bracket. Well. So mine was the Unity One electric car. It's not um, being sold at the moment, uh, but it starts at £15,100. It's a three-seater. So there's one seat at the front, and two seats which are apparently big enough for two adults at the back. Uh, it's described as a British-built affordable electric city car. 
and it's um, the project of a Swedish company but with UK collaboration and um, the, the development engineering and production hub is based in Norfolk. I had a little look at it. it it's a dinky little car and certainly one for um, not for long journeys where you've got lots of bags. But if you're if you're the type that, you know, is perhaps using a smart car or something like yeah. that at the moment, it's a perfect opportunity, a perfect entry point for an electric car. And it would get you for the school run or just to and from the office. Yeah, or... to the supermarket yeah. as long as you haven't got any passengers. Or a... Loads of space if you put the two seats down <laughs> at the back. <laughs> but Heather, what was the one that you found? So the one that, the, the one that I found, it, a friend of ours has just got one of these. So this is why I, I was quite excited about all of this. This is the Jaguar I-Pace. So this is at a very different price point. Prices start from £61,000. Yes. Um, and, you know, but the range on it is about 300 miles. Um, and the friend, and apparently the acceleration is incredible. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's a nice looking car. Um, and it's got this amazing thing where the doors, um, the handles on the doors come out. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. But um, we were talking very much about the charging points so he hasn't got a charging point at home at the moment but is having one put in uh has just had a charging point put in at the office uh you pay 150 pounds and the government subsidizes the rest of the cost of installing the charging point so at home he was charging the vehicle and it takes about 20 hours to for a full charge whereas it it's done in virtually no time at all with one of the fast charging points which are these you know these sockets that we're starting to see around the place um so we had a long conversation about where do you get a charge from yeah i think that may be one of the limiting factors for people choosing um to to get an electric car is the uncertainty of how it all works and what the infrastructure is around it you found an article about boroughs in london and i was looking at one which was looking at the difference between um, the north and the south of England. So, what did you find about boroughs in London? Well, it, it was just in, it was quite interested in that um, Westminster, as you might expect, um, has got the most charging points. Um, so, it's got three hundred and seventy-five electric vehicle charging points, which actually doesn't sound like very much to me. Um, but what they were doing is they were looking. So then we get to Islington. There's only one hundred and sixty-six. So when you look at those stats and you think about Westminster and you think about Islington, um, I'd almost expect it to be the other way around in terms of the demographic. But but there we go. Um, and then it, it lists the fewest charging points. So um, Harrow, for example, has only got seven. And they're quoting these figures based on number of charging points per thousand population. Uh, but it's, I think it's an interesting study. And then they started to look outside of London. Uh, because obviously the government are investing an awful lot of money, as we've talked about. Um, so you go to Milton Keynes, there's 192, Aberdeen, 100, Derby, 41. Um, but these are all big cities, Peterborough, 9, Liverpool, 77. So it's all the gaps in between. When you start to look at these cities, if you, if you live in between... Look at Wales. Yeah, where... It's difficult enough in rural Wales to find... Um, a garage for petrol and diesel yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. never mind an electric charging point those sorts of figures about the charging points uh, are reflected in the electric vehicle registrations so in the north of england they're, they're a lot lower than in the south of england with more than a third by by more than a third and and they, they found that places with the greatest rise in registrations are the cities like cardiff oxford and bristol 
and with the lowest registrations, sort of Bradford, Blackburn and Warrington. And if you look at Hull and Wigan, they've got just 13 and 9 charging points within a five-mile radius, compared to Milton Keynes, yeah. as you just mentioned, yeah. with over 100 ports within a five-mile radius. So that's going to be one of the reasons why, why people are a little slow to adopt, unless they've got charging point at home, charging point at work, and they're only really using the car between to those two right. points. There is that uncertainty. I would be nervous with mm. the uncertainty of heading somewhere and then thinking... I, I couldn't um, actually charge. And I can see the, the benefit there of a, the hybrid car, but then that doesn't attract the same um, tax breaks no. as the all-electric All electric. Car. And one, one thing that I think is really interesting is that uh, you remember when we were talking about the, um, uh, talking to the um, civil engineers president a couple of weeks ago, and we had that conversation about opportunity. Well, there's massive opportunity here. I was talking... Uh, somebody was talking recently about if you people are going to change the way that they behave based on where they can get a charge for their vehicle because once they're out of their normal home work environment they're going to be looking elsewhere so if you run a shop with a public car park or a pub or a hotel you're going to be more attractive to people if they need electric charging points so some businesses are putting them in a, a car dealership in particular they're putting them in the people will pay to charge their vehicles but it's going to get footfall yeah. so here we are somebody with an electric car who is obviously open to technology charging their vehicle at your car showroom what they're going to be doing looking at cars it's an opportunity yeah loads of opportunity there well just so you know there are some targets that countries have set for themselves for the ending of the sale of petrol or diesel cars new ones not the yeah. resale so leading the way is norway 2025 they've set as a target for the ending of the sale of new or uh, petrol or diesel. Um, 2030 is Iceland, Ireland, Israel, Slovenia and the Netherlands. 2035 for Denmark and the UK is 2040. So UK, Sri Lanka, Spain, Portugal, France and Canada. And last but not least, 2050 for Costa Rica. But I'd be really interested to see how Norway forge ahead with those plans yeah. The one other thing, Dyson have just announced that they're not going to make their electric car. Uh, and already there's there's talk about the next technology, which is hydrogen. So it may be that, you know, that whole electric thing becomes passe and we move on to something completely different. You're listening to the business community on Cal on FM. And we, we've been looking at other stories in the news. And I came across an article uh, in People Management um, from last week. Uh, it's talking about the problems that fathers have um, getting the flexible work hours that they need. Uh, there's been a survey conducted by working dads and working mums that found that two in five working fathers who applied for flexible working had their requests turned down. And essentially, the article is talking about the way um, the fact that men face many of the same problems with work life balance as women, um, but aren't allowed the flexibility in the workplace. They're struggling to secure the flexible hours they need to balance work and home life and actually face stigma from line managers and colleagues when they asked for or were working flexibly. And I actually think this is part of the, the bigger subject we've been talking about changing the future of the workplace is you know the traditional idea that the man is the breadwinner winner is 
Yeah, that's long gone, isn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. But also the value that's placed on um, just purely salary. And there's a, a lot of talk about millennials and I think more Generation Z is, is that they're going to be asking for other benefits, which include flexible working for both genders. Um, and if pl employers want to attract and retain the best talent, they're going to have to start thinking about offering more flexible working for both men and women. The, the survey that um, um, Working Dads and Working Mums did found that um, far more mothers work part-time, 43% from this survey, compared to just 4% of fathers. I think, as, as you rightly said, apart from the fact that people should be able to make a decision as to which of them wants to spend the most time uh, with the children, it, you know, it's entirely up to them. But, you know, how does that rule work where you've got same-sex parents? So you've got, you know, you've got two men now and they've got children. So they're both in, you know... One of them is the woman in in a traditional sense. Okay, so how do you, how would you square that? They should be able to choose, and and if, it doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman. If they're asking to work, if they, if they are a parent, they should be able to ask to work flexibly. So I don't. Yeah. We can't apply these rules to families. We don't know what their circumstances are. And I, I don't. Th I think it goes wider as well because I don't think it should just apply to parents. There's all the research that, uh, that's out there at the moment. It's talking about how working three days a week is much better for your mental health as well. The the face of of work is changing, and I, I do believe that companies are going to have to start looking at other options. For, for everybody. Yeah, and I mean, we have a lot of people who are looking after elderly parents. Yeah. You know, you don't, it, it doesn't, it's it's being able to ask. I think everybody should be able to ask. You don't have to honour it. You don't have to grant it. But the, it has to start with the conversation of can I, I think. Absolutely. Um, another article I, f I spotted is um, from Positive News and... Again, it's on a subject we've been talking about over the last few months, and that's social enterprises. And this research that has been done shows that um, social enterprises are outperforming traditional businesses in the UK on turnover growth. And also, obviously, this makes a lot of sense when tackling inequality. And um, this is a report by Social Enterprise UK, the body that represents UK's social enterprises. According to their research, 52% of social enterprises grew their turnover in the last 12 months, despite all of the uncertainty that we've got going on um, to do with the B word, compared with just 34% of traditional SMEs. So I think the numbers showing that social enterprise movement is is starting to get momentum they're more forward thinking when it comes to environmental and social concerns and they're, they're tackling issues that are actually are, are quite right for the zeitgeist at the moment it, it's all starting to come together so I, i'm going to keep an eye on that there, there is um there was a campaign that was run um, 7th to the 12th of October to celebrate the UK's 100,000 social enterprises. It was called um, Buy Social for a Better World. It was um, championed by some celebrity figures. And I, I think there's there's a reform coming. And, and I, th I think it's going to be an exciting one to watch. And that's it, it's no uh, coincidence that... The, the growth of social enterprise is coming off the back of a, more and more cuts in um, services. So they're plugging a gap 
and then benefiting from it quite rightly. So uh, interesting times. I um, started to look a little further ahead, thinking about Black Friday. We've been talking about Black Friday deals with some friends the other day. And I thought, oh, crikey, when is that? Well, Black Friday, if you didn't already know, is the 29th of November. I didn't know. Closely followed by Cyber Monday. Ah, is that the Which Monday is the following after? Monday, right. yeah. So... Uh, a lot of us know it. Black Friday is a thing that's kind of come from, it was a phrase that was coined in the States and has come from the USA. But it's really got some traction here with the likes of Amazon um, majoring on their Black Friday deals. You know, five years ago, I don't think anybody really knew what the heck it was. And now people are like, oh, well, I'll wait and see if there are any Black Friday deals. And we kind of know what we're talking about. So uh, as with anything, as a buyer, it's a great opportunity to bag yourself a bargain. But as a retailer uh, or, or, or a service provider of any kind, it's an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that people are holding on to their money waiting for November the 29th. And so I found an article. Uh, so the Telegraph were talking about um, when it is and, and what it is. But then I found an article on a website called tamebay.com, uh, how you can prepare for Black Friday or Cyber Monday. And whilst it's not rocket science, one of the interesting things that they talk about is extending that 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 season. So you can have early Black Friday deals. Indeed, Amazon do that. And you can have late Cyber Monday deals. The Cyber Monday is much more tech stuff, but you can you can choose um, to run this, to run the campaign as long as you like, uh, but of course you need to make sure you've got plenty of stock, um, that your stock is well organised, that you're going to ship promptly, uh, you're going to meet people's expectations because if they're if they've waited to buy a coffee machine on on Black Friday, guess what? They're going to want it fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah, not wait until January. Exactly. For it to be yeah. yeah. So it's that whole. Um, making sure that you can deliver on expectation. Um, and also one thing that they talked about is using um, web chat. Live web chat is available on so many websites now um, so that people can ask questions and make inquiries so that you're engaging with them so then they commit and make the purchase from you. Cool. So, yeah, a few things to think about there. In the discovery section this week, I have got a book which is an international bestseller and it's a book that I've had for quite a while and I found myself reading something the other day and it mentioned the book and I thought, sure, I've got that book somewhere. So I thought I'd fish oh, it out. Nice. I like yeah. it when that happens. Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah, oh, okay. And it, it's a book called, it's by a guy called Rolf Dobelli. It's a hardback as well. It's a hardback. hardback. It's quite compact. Um, the art. You're of... lush today, talking about Jaguars and bringing in hardback books. I know. Whatever next. This is actually a real book. It was bought for me as a gift. But um, it's, yeah, it's called The Art of Thinking Clearly. And, okay, it's aimed at, um, they say, uh, it is essential reading for anyone with important decisions to make. Now, on the on the face of it, you think, mm, okay, anyone, what? everyone, yeah, yeah. But what I love about it is it it talks about different um, scenarios, effectively. So, if I read a few of the uh, contents, so why you should visit cemeteries, survivorship bias, uh, why you see shapes in the clouds, clustering illusion, 
Um, don't buy to authority, authority bias. So, and then it talks about scenarios where we are subjected to different unconscious bias. Uh, and it's a bit like the authority one is, you know, we've heard stories in the past, you know, where somebody, if somebody puts on a uniform, they can pretty much tell anybody to do anything because we, we'd programmed. Or even an identity badge, a e lanyard. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, and that is used as a force, can be used as a force for bad, as we understand. But from a marketing point of view, understanding why and how we make decisions can actually help us when we're either negotiating or whether we're trying to promote our services. So it, it's it's got loads of different chapters. I spent most of yesterday sort of immersed in this book. Um, and I, I thought I'd choose one that I think a lot of us know, um, which, which is chapter 18, uh, Never Pay Your Lawyer by the Hour. Okay. Okay. Um, and so it talks about, um, uh, it, it sets the scene but then it starts to talk about um, if you pay your uh, if you pay your lawyer by the hour, it the value is unknown and it's very good. They point. can open ended, yeah, yeah, and they can expand the time to fit, and they and whatever maybe they, they will. They yeah. need to go on holiday you, this month, exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you say if they give you a fixed price, or if you give somebody a fixed price, then there is reassurance that they're going to spend, they're going to work as efficiently as possible to deliver the outcome and you're not going to be penalised for them dragging their heels. So uh, so that it, it talks about how we can use that to our advantage when we're negotiating, um, whether it's time or whether it's money that we're, we're interested in. Uh, I would say it does go the other way as well. If somebody asks you for a fixed price, yep. you do have to be very careful with the specification of what it is that you've priced. What you, yeah, what you Other, are. Otherwise, you could end up doing way more work than you actually originally specified. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and and the, the, bit, the quote that I would... Imagine for a moment that instead of demanding enemies' riches, warriors and soldiers charged by the hour, we would effectively be incentivizing them to take as long as possible to to yeah. achieve the outcome and so why do we do this with lawyers architects consultants accountants and driving instructors Good how long point. will it take me to learn to drive <laughs> you know my the, the advice given forget hourly rates and always negotiate a fixed price in advance but as a business don't underestimate the power of offering that fixed price so that's my that's my um, discovery for this week but i wanted to just mention i think i've I've commented on this various times in the past. Um, the thing where, you know, you're going to buy a new car and then suddenly every car is... Oh, yes. You know, and it's been bugging me for ages. It's got a name. I know it's got a name. I know it's got a name. So I actually went and found out. And it is, it's named after a West German terrorist group from the 1970s called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And um, basically, it's got nothing to do with Bader-Meinhof other than um, a, a journalist mentioned that They'd been referred to twice in 24 hours. And so now the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is when you meet somebody for the first time and they seem to pop up everywhere. So uh, I thought I'd just share that with you in case you've been losing sleep wondering. <laughs> what have you discovered, Tracy? <laughs> OK, I've discovered The Real Entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a book. 
not actual person. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, who is he um, or she? <laughs> the subtitle is How to Simplify, Grow and Enjoy Your Business. Seems okay. like a, a good aim for me. It's by a lady called Lisa Zevi. And again, as always, apologies if that isn't correctly pronounced, um, who um, has worked as a right-hand woman, apparently, in large corporations and investment banks, helping entrepreneurs to form great partnerships. Um, she's a qualified business coach and a Lean Six Sigma black belt. Uh, apparently, she's passionate about encouraging business owners to play to their strengths, build great teams and scale their businesses. Now, I have to say, I was nearly lost on the first couple of pages. OK, so in the foreword, which is by um, a guy whose uh, work we have read before, Paul Alvins, uh, Paul Avins, sorry, um, he says, what if there was a real world formula to growing a scalable and sustainable business that made it easy for you to take action and get results? And I thought, oh, Imagine. I don't I don't sort of fall into the, the camp of believing there's a formula for getting this right. A lot of it is trial and error. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you there's more error than success. But we, and we don't you hear success. Yeah, you don't yeah. shout about your failure. So I nearly went, oh, right, OK, I, I don't want a formula for success. But. Lisa, in her own words, actually recovers it. So, um, what, and they talk about one of the biggest myths in our culture is that all successful people are self-made. And uh, we often hear the term self-made millionaire, yet the reality is that nobody does it on their own. And the smartest and most successful people ask for the support they need. And that's a recurring theme in the profiles that we do, isn't it? But people recognising what their weaknesses are and how they need to plug the gap. And uh, yeah, she goes on, she's got some real nice points and she structures it around the idea of this real model, which she's got copyrighted. Um, it's divided into four pillars, which um, hardly surprisingly spell out the word real. So resilience, energy, accountability and leadership. The model in itself is neither here nor there for me. But actually, what I found of real value was the interviews and the case studies and she gave in every chapter tools, exercises, lists. And some of the exercises made me think I found them really useful. Um, and at the end of each chapter as well is the takeaways. So she, she'll just give some simple nuggets at the end. These are the takeaways from the section. So I think it... Yeah, read through the foreword. Whether you believe there's a formula to success in business, um, which I personally don't, um, or not, get through the foreword and actually read this and use some of the practical tools and techniques, you know, things like how to avoid distraction, um, how to not be overwhelmed, avoiding firefighting, how to build a great team, just really useful little exercises. And um, it, it's offering to help you to um, look at your business in a more entrepreneurial way, how to scale your business, how to scale your business without it consuming you, which is... Yes. A very important yes. consideration. How to build resilience, uh, how to form great teams. And uh, that's called The Real Entrepreneur. How to Simplify, Grow and Enjoy Your Business by Lisa Zevi. If you've got Kindle Unlimited, it's available on there at the moment. So get it while you can. And uh, I, I think it's well worth a read. So we'll put links to both of those books and, of course, anything else that we've talked about on today's show on our website, thebusiness.community. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. Now we are profiling a gentleman called Karen Faradun Billimoria, Baron Billimoria of Chelsea. Now he came onto my well, 
I'm aware of his business. Yep. Um, but him personally only came onto my radar as I was um, researching the speakers at the Festival of Entre- Enterprise. Get the, get the wording right. Where, That's we, where are we are right, right now. now. Yep. Um, and I was really looking forward to hearing him speak. Only I found out that he was speaking the day before mm. we're going to be here. He spoke yesterday, if you're listening to this now, <laughs> on yeah. the 24th Maybe you of were there. Maybe you were there. So um, he's a, Brit- uh, a British Indian entrepreneur. He's a life peer in the UK House of Lords and the Chancellor of Birmingham University. And as I mentioned, he's well known for founding the beer brand Cobra. Cobra beer. And I'm, I have to admit, I've drunk a few Cobra beers. I don't I ever have. Never are you, you're not a beer drinker, though, are you, no, Heather? No. Um, I know you like a curry, though. I do. Yeah, yes. and that's it's the perfect accompaniment, isn't it? It was designed to be the perfect accompaniment to a beer. While he was studying in um, Cambridge um, with a friend, he um, was noticing that in uh, the Indian restaurants where he was eating, the normal lager was too gassy and bloating to be enjoyed with food. Nothing worse than trying to eat your Indian meal and you're too full on beer drink. <laughs> and, and so he uh, he came up with a concept for a beer that, in quotes, has the refreshing qualities of a lager, but the smoothness and drinkability of an ale. So there you go. And um, it was in particularly aimed at Indian food and curries. And, and that's where his adventure started. But interesting guy and reading through um some of his history that he's not he wasn't in the press a lot uh, apart from when cobra was in trouble so that was in the early 2000s and he's recently come into the press again this year because he's um become the vice president of the cbi so um vice president vice chair i forgot the vice chair isn't it vice chair yes oh it was we're interviewing presidents for the Institution of Civil Engineers. I just want presidents yes, now. Yes. Well, I'd actually, there's a, there's one particular president. I'm not that keen. No, on no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Heather, what did you find out about him? Well, he. he um, I watched a video uh, of him speaking in 2011, I think it was, and he was talking about how, in order to anticipate where we will be in 10 years' time, we need to look back. At where we were 10 years ago or indeed 20 years ago um, and it was it wasn't a really interesting talk uh, he's quite engaging um he's yeah he, he's not too bullish he he, he seems like a, a quite a nice kind of guy but the time of the video um was in his heyday so i think actually i think it was 2006 but um it was it was when cobra was still going well um before cobra fell into uh, fell upon hard times and was bought by yeah. cause so 29th of may 2009 if you want the precise right date, when okay they went into okay so yes yeah, so it was 2006 i think um so it, it, so yeah he, interesting got some really interesting observations but i got carried away by looking at um parliament parliament.uk um to find out a bit about him and there's loads of stuff you can read about members of the house of lords that i didn't even know that you could oh right okay like, what did you find like out? their voting histories which you could spend an awful lot of time because it will say 
um, whether they were for or against. Did you go down a rabbit hole? I was down this massive rabbit hole. Well, you ended up, I ended up reading the whole transcripts of debates about particular things and then the vote. However, his policy interests interested me. So he listed asylum, immigration and nationality, business industry and consumers, as you would hope, defence, economy and finance, education, employment and training, European Union, international affairs, parliament, government and politics. And then it lists his his world areas of, of interest. Um, and his UK areas were London, Cambridgeshire, Oxfordshire, Merseyside and the Midlands. And when you look at um, his some of his business uh, interests, guess where they're located? In those areas? Or where they were located yeah. at the time. Yeah. So, um, so that, to me, was almost more interesting than the man. <laughs> was the stuff that I was able to find out about him. I feel I need to correct um, my earlier statement. He is the vice president of CBI. Oh, Tweets. is it president? Yeah. Okay. I'm just looking at his, his um, Twitter bio. So if you want to find him on Twitter, he's at Lord underscore Billimoria, founder and chairman of Cobra Beer, independent crush crossbench peers uh, peer chancellor of birmingham university and vice president of cbi and in the way that you did you go to company's house and look him up of course i did yes. okay okay before you well do you want me to go there now go there now seven current appointments of what i found of faradoon wines minimar 900 yes um pick toso holdings Billimoria and Billimoria LLP, General Billimoria Wines, Cobra Beer Partnership Limited and the Cobra Foundation. Well, you can find that information out on parliament.uk. Oh, I don't even need, So if we've got a lord or a lady, I don't even need to go to companies no, anymore. So you can see their directorships, but then you can see a list of remunerated employment, office and profession. Ooh. And then their shareholdings in other businesses. So again, um, uh, and it also lists where he is a person with significant control of a company. And of course, you can do this with anybody, any member of the House of Lords. And then they also have to declare any gifts, benefits and hospitality that they've received and any uh, financial or non-financial interests. Mm. We talked a bit about um, when he came uh, to be the vice president of the CBI, and this is where some of the um, press coverage uh, sparks up again. And they go back to the time when Cobra Beer was failing. And, and some of the criticism was that uh, during the collapse and subsequent sale of Cobra Beer, um, obviously some of the creditors lost some money. Mm. And uh, I, I, I'm... I started to wonder about how valid this criticism was because actually when a business fails, the creditors generally do lose their money. However, he did make a commitment to pay that money back as much as he could. Uh, and the criticism in the newspapers was he hasn't paid it all back. So, um, £70 million is a fair amount of money to, to owe to your creditors. Um, and I, I saw an interview where he said, what other option did I have? You know, I what have I been doing for the past 10 years? He's been paying chunks of the debt back. He's been doing his utmost, he says, as long as it takes. Um, and he quite rightly said, I could have wiped out many of my creditors, wiped out the shareholders, you know, done all of that, because legally that's what he's allowed to have done. 
So I, I, I felt a little bit that, that that criticism that he got was was unfair because legally he he could he didn't have any um, need to pay back that money to the creditors and he has started to do that. I don't know the full details of all of that, but that's that was where I was seen in a lot of the um, press around the time he was announced to be the vice president. And I think that's true. That that just demonstrates the way that the press often works. I mean, we talked about Jamie Oliver um, recently in the closing of his his restaurants. Uh, the press doesn't really focus on how much money was invested to try and prop things up and i think when we've got people this you know this is mickey mouse money for uh, monopoly money for a lot of us yeah you know the numbers are so massive and in some business failures you can see that the problems are to do with money that the shareholders the owners have taken out yeah when actually yes. the business couldn't support it there's plenty of examples of that yes but as you rightly say jamie oliver wasn't taken out he never took out the restaurant business yeah. He put in. And yet that sort of mud sticks, doesn't it, yeah. in terms of reputation. So so Lord Billamoria could be um, could be n- known as the person who's failed beer business. You know, you co- he couldn't even sell beer. However, there's so much more to it than that, I think. So we look at quotes. So when you do a, um, a Google search for quotes by... Um, Lord Billamoria, um, there's only one that comes up. Have, have you found that one, Heather? No, well, I don't know. Uh, the one that I found was at the end of his talk that I'd watched. Okay, but, so uh, let, let me just say that the one quote that I saw, um, which which came up when I did the search, and I've got another one where it's a question asking him what his favourite quote is. Okay. So if that's okay. okay. So the, the one that came up with the Google search, uh, I think is actually quite a good quote. Grand business plans are all very well, but nothing beats dipping your toe in the water. Yeah, great. And then the other one is a, an interview um, for uh, boardintelligence.com when asked what his favourite quote was. Um, and he said it's his company motto, to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. He went on to say that the de- that's the definition of entrepreneurship. When you come up with an idea, you've got all the odds stacked up against you. You have little or no means, but you go out there and you make it happen. But most importantly, you do it with the right principles and values with integrity and that is my quote which oh, is no. <laughs> literally how he how he finishes his uh, his ted talk uh, it was a cambridge tedx talk if actually. only we discussed this if before only we, we came on air yeah. but 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 it's worth watching the talk to yeah, see I didn't know about how he built talk. yeah how he how he builds to that but um but yeah aspire achieve against all odds and whatever you do do it with integrity yeah for sure You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.